entertainment industry, and I worked uh, alongside of a, a fellow actor by the name of Eric. And it seemed that when I was working with Eric, that God was putting this guy into my life for specific purposes. Um, we got cast kind of in these parts where we were like a friend duo, you know? Um, what's, what's a current friend duo, duo in, in the world of TV right now? I don't even know. I'm thinking Boy Meets World, but that's older. <laughs> I don't know, maybe that's more of my, my, my time frame. Um, <laughs> And we really did get along, this guy Eric and I, but we, we did not have the common bond of Jesus Christ between us. He wasn't a believer. I was a new Christian at the time when we were first hanging out and getting to know each other. Um, and my heart began to beat for this guy that I loved so dearly as a friend, but he did not know Christ. My heart began to beat for him to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. And so I began to pray for him. <clears throat> I shared the gospel with him, and he was fairly resistant. We stayed friends, which was good news. But he was resistant to it, so I just went on praying. And years went by, and again, we were back in our teens. And then I asked my friends at youth group to pray for this young guy who was a friend of mine. And eventually, God did answer our prayers, and he ended up saying yes to coming to one of our winter camps. I was at Grace Community at the time. You guys were probably there. Carol's were there at, at that camp on staff at the high school group. Um, I will never forget the last day of camp. If you're there, Tracy, you'll probably remember this. My buddy Eric, who didn't know anybody in our youth group, stood up in, in front of this entire youth group. There was probably 300, 350 kids in this big auditorium. And he says, I'm a believer in Jesus. I've been, I've been living a lie, and now I want to give my life entirely to Christ. And, then, and, and I remember afterwards, I mean, I was just like, there were tears. I was just pumped, right? Afterwards, I went and I went and talked to my buddy Eric, and he's like, Pat, I know you've been telling me about Jesus for years, but it wasn't until I talked to Rodney Anderson that it all clicked. And i got to be totally honest with you. When he said that, I was like a little bit bummed that I didn't get to be the guy that God used to kind of seal the deal. Um, which is just ridiculous, okay? I'm admitting that. That's a horrible thing to think. Why? It's missing the point, isn't it? My, my, my friend Eric was professing faith in Jesus Christ. After years of praying for him and desiring that the gospel would take effect in his life, he was now responding. And really the only thing that you can do at that point is rejoice. Praise the Lord. Well, whether you get to be the one who leads the sinner on those final steps as they figure out the gospel and, and the spirit regenerates their heart, or maybe you're just the friend who's on your knees for years and years. Every Christian, complete in Christ, has to be, must be, according to God's word, engaged in the work that God has called us to, to join him in advancing his gospel on the earth. And that's essentially what I'm going to say tonight. We must be engaged in gospel advancement. That's what Paul is calling us to in Colossians 4, 2 through 6. And tonight, I want to show you this twofold charge that he gives Christians in this passage in Colossians 4. 
He's telling the, the, this church in Colossae to be engaged in advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, before we read it, I want you to keep in mind the context of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And I understand that you guys have actually had quite a bit of Colossians preached here at college recently. Am I right? Maybe? A little bit? Okay, so I'm going to test you a little bit. What, what would be, what would you say is the main focus of the letter to the Colossians, the main theme? Just shout it out. None of you TC people can answer either. Okay, Megan said. Thank you, the sufficiency of Christ. Colossians, Colossians, she says, sufficiency of Christ. And it's correct. Colossians is a defense of the sufficiency, or there was a girl in a Bible study that Natalie and I were in about, boy, nine years ago, who used to say the enoughness of Christ. So, and I thought that was kind of cool and hip. Um, you could say the enoughness of Christ. In simple terms, the book of Colossians communicates Jesus is enough. He's totally sufficient. False teachers in this town in Colossae have crept into this community, and their message has been Jesus plus other things. And Paul's message in this letter, especially in chapters 1 and 2, he discounts this false gospel, because that's not correct. He emphasizes that Christ is, in fact, enough, and he highlights the believer's total completeness in Christ. Hey, Ryan Gallon. Hey. <laughs> good to see you, bro. <laughs> sorry, sorry to put you on blast there. My good buddy. Um, he says, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 10, in him you have been made complete. That, that's, the, that's a key word throughout the book of Colossians. So we're all going to say it together. In him you have been made complete. totally complete in Christ. In chapter 3, Paul begins to describe what this looks like to live consistent with or in line with this completeness that we have in Christ and in him alone. And he even gives these specific commands to a variety of people. Wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves. This is what it looks like to be one of those people in one of those categories and you're complete in Christ. And so as he comes to the end of chapter 3, comes right up to our passage that Terrell just read. Colossians 4, after verse 1, because it's kind of the end of that list of people categories. Verse 2, Paul has one final section of exhortations that he's going to level at the Colossians before he wraps up this letter. It's kind of the last thing that he says. And you can tell by the language the things that Paul says here in this little tiny paragraph are super important to him. And since we've already read the passage, let's just pray, and then we'll dive into it. Lord, I want to set my heart and my attention towards your truth right now. I want to take a message that I've sat on a desk and wrestled through and prayed through and worked through the nuances of what Paul's intention is with the words that he writes to the Colossians <coughs> so many years ago. But Lord, we want to incline our ears. I want to incline my heart. We want to together set our attention towards what it is that you would want us to learn, to know what your heart is about the lost, 
to know what is important as we live life for you on this earth in this very short life that we have. So my prayer, Lord, is that uh, myself included, that we would um, put ourselves before your truth and be changed as a result of our time tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. There's no greater task that we've been left with on earth as believers in Jesus than this one. Bring God glory through engaging with him in the work that he is doing in making sinners come to faith in Jesus Christ, the advancement of his gospel. And one of our greatest tools, which is key and huge in this passage, is the one that Paul gives here, prayer. Prayer. And these two areas of ministry, though, though they are of utmost importance, wouldn't you agree? They're like the two things that we are weakest in as, as Christians. Maybe in particular in our American Christian experience. Because we're very comfortable and we don't think maybe as much as we should with that heavenly mindset. Prayer and evangelism. And I just think at the end of this letter, Paul's saving the best for last. He's talked about the putting off and putting on of sanctification. Now he goes outward and he talks about salvation. And there's two clear commands here. So we think about gospel advancement. Here are the two essential ways, if you're taking notes, that he gives us to stay engaged in advancing the gospel. Very simple. The first one is pray kind of just have to make that my first point because of the passage. Pray. And the second one is going to be something that I've kind of put together that I think expresses an application point as we read this passage. The second point is going to be be the answer to your prayer. How do you like that? Pray. Gospel advancement. Be the answer to your prayer. And then if you're taking notes, I'm going to try and be as clear as I can with the points because I'm going to do some subpoints under each one of these. But just remember the two things we're going to talk about, prayer and then being the answer to your prayer. Point number one is simple. If you want to be engaged in the ministry of furthering God's kingdom, then you have to be engaged with your God. Paul says pray and he gives four key descriptions and all these are ways in which we are to pray in the context of this Charge. So again, if you're taking notes, I'm going to make these letters. Letter A, we are to pray continually. Look at verse 2. The Greek behind this phrase, devote yourselves, it can be translated continue. It's that idea of continual. And it's built around the root meaning of this word, which is to be strong. Okay? So I just fast-forwarded through some language. But the idea is, in the context of this passage, you're hearing Paul say continual steadfastness in this action that you're doing. And what is the action? Prayer. Prayer. Continual steadfast action in this action, which is prayer. So as Paul says, even when he writes to the Thessalonians, you're going to know that verse, right? We've heard that a lot. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. That's that continual prayer. He's making the same exhortation towards the Colossians here in this letter. And notice, this is not yet connected to the call 
to pray for the lost yet. Because that's what the charge is in the long run of this little paragraph. But he hasn't yet talked about evangelism. He's just talking about prayer. Simply prayer. Prayer. Dependent seeking of the Lord in meditative communion. That's my little definition for the night. There's lots more you could say about prayer, but I just think dependence upon the Lord, communing with Him, meditating upon His truth, His character. And I, just based on Scripture, the, just those two, two verses alone, it should be the normal, continual, steadfast activity of the believer. Do you agree with that? That's, that's what the scripture tells us. And not every so often, and not only when times are tough, but continually. Francisco Martinez, we call him Franny, he leads our Spanish ministry at FBC, and uh, he used to be involved here in, in college ministry on staff here. He's had his heart on a great desire to see our church family embrace prayer. And really, it's coming from a place where he himself just wants to get after prayer in his life. So he and I have kind of put our hearts together a little bit, and we've made a commitment to stir ourselves towards, towards praying more and being engaged in that regular communing with God. And I remember it was a couple of years ago that Fran put out an email because he just thought, man, I really want to see our church kind of be stirred up in this area. Now, I'm not telling you that Francisco has the corner on the market of praying all the time. By no means perfect. In fact, that's what it's all about. As he and I have interacted about this, we realize this is so lacking in our lives. But man, it's so important. A couple years ago, he said, let's pray. We were, we were headed towards uh, uh, camps. Uh, both the high school and junior high were going away for camp, and he thought, let me get some people together to pray. And he put it out on the church community email. And anyways, I don't know. You could say that it wasn't good promotion or whatever reason. But when it came time, and he made it a convenient time that seemed like it was going to work just fine. I mean, out of how many people are at our church? There's a lot. Of, I mean, we're like 800 to 1,000 people. There were three people who showed up for that prayer meeting. And I remember thinking, man. I, I don't, I just, the, the, those, that, that ratio between the amount of people in our church and the amount of people that would show up to pray for the salvation of souls at camp is kind of staggering. And I don't mean to, I'm not bagging on our church, I just think we get into seasons and we get into a flow of life that doesn't always include an ever, uh, the thought of an ev the ever presence the forever and constant presence of God in our lives. We need prayer. Sadly, we go to prayer when it's, when we get into those tough, difficult situations. Rather than, like Paul's asking, like Paul's commanding, to pray without ceasing and devote yourself continually to prayer. Corey Ten Boom. You guys know who Corey Ten Boom is? She's the awesomely godly woman who helped the Jews escape the Nazi Holocaust. She, she once asked this question. Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Oh man, that's a good one. Corey Ten Boom. 
Prayer should be the breath in our lungs as we walk through every moment of life, whether it's high on the mountaintop or down in the valley. Paul says we're to devote ourselves continually. And adding to that, letter B, we're to pray watchfully, he says. So pray continually, now pray watchfully. Paul says keeping alert in it. That word literally means to stay awake. Sometimes when I come alongside of a brother who's struggling with various sinful habits, as a part of the accountability, I will set up uh, an alarm on my phone uh, to send them text messages during those late-night vulnerable moments. And the men in this room, I, I, I would assume, would probably hear me out on this. There will be those times where we're fatigued and at the end of a long day, and without immediate accountability around us, we can fail in those areas of our thoughts and actions. And so when I'm coming alongside of a brother, I'll set an alarm, and I call it my wake-up alarm. I know it's kind of funny. It's a wake-up call at 10 p.m. And here's what it is. Here's what I'm after. Because I've asked other guys to do this for me, too, so I'm just saying. Here's what, what the, the point of that is. I want to remind them to wake up <coughs> to their convictions. To wake up to your pursuit of purity. Wake up to your commitment to the Word of God. No amount of fatigue or vulnerability is an excuse for sleeping on the job when it comes to sin. The flesh is strong. We all recognize that. Your own sin, other temptations, the work of the evil one is close at hand. And we must live life on the alert. Peter warns us in 1 Peter 5.8, you'll know this verse. It says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So I, I wonder if we hear that plea and we think, you know, that's just a super spiritual thought. That idea that we need to be on the alert constantly because the devil's on the prowl like a lion. I think, I think I've done that often, if I'm totally honest. So do you set that aside as like a super spiritual perspective? Or can you stop for a moment and recognize the fact that the world that you live in is sin-saturated? That your flesh is very strong. And that you need to be ever on the alert. And Paul's saying here, you've got to get on your knees. And you've got to engage in that war. It's the question you should ask when you find yourself stuck in a cycle of sin. Or struggling to have the right heart attitude toward that friend that you're in conflict with. Or when you're fighting hopelessly against discontentment with where your life is at right now. You should ask yourself, have I prayed about it? Have I sought the Lord about this specifically and begged him for help? You've got to stir that tired mind. Wipe the sleep off of your eyes. Be vigilant and pray watchfully. That's that second letter. And then the third letter, letter C, 
Pray also thankfully. Paul says in the text, pray with an attitude of what? Good, you're still there. That's the same thing that Paul says when he challenges the Philippians. Again, Paul's very repetitive, right? So if you look in Philippians 4, he says to be anxious for nothing. You know that passage? But instead, to put it before the Lord. And at the end of that little paragraph there, he says, do all of this with thanksgiving. It's interesting. There's always an element of thanksgiving to many of the places that Paul calls us to pray. Earlier in Colossians, Paul commands them to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly. One of my favorite passages. And then there's a list of outward expressions that Paul talks about. Teaching, admonishing, he talks about singing. And all of those things, they're done with what? A heart of thanksgiving. Listen, Christians. We of all people on the earth need to be a people who are thankful. Don't we remember Ephesians 2? That we were dead in our transgressions and sins? But that God made us alive and that incredible salvation that he's given us is no work of my own. It's a gift of God. I can't boast it was while we were yet sinners. Romans 5, what a great passage. It's while we were yet sinners. That's when Jesus laid down his life for the ungodly. That's us. I love the modern hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It's written by Stuart Townend. In that third verse it says, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death, and his resurrection on our behalf. Fellow followers of Christ, does your salvation not cause extreme gratefulness in your hearts? And I imagine there's some in this room who have not experienced this undeserved grace of God's salvation in your life. Maybe you're here checking things out and maybe you're waiting for the smallest detour in somebody's character or life. You kind of wait for that hypocrisy to show up because it will in churches so that you can kind of justify not going the way of this Christian thing. Can I give you a little spoiler alert? You're surrounded by sinners. <laughs> They're going to fail you. The only one that you can fully trust and will never fail us and was faithful towards sinners all the way to the point of laying down his life for us is Jesus Christ and him alone. That's the only way that any of us have any chance of rescue. If we're saved and on our way to heaven and standing right before God, that is only a work that God can do in us. Every believer in this room has come to that point of recognizing their sin. 
seeing that they cannot work their way to a right relationship with God, but that Christ died and raised from the grave for them. They repented, they turned from their sin, and they placed their trust in Jesus Christ alone. And that makes us thankful people. We didn't deserve it, and God gave it to us anyway. Is that the testimony of every believer in here? This is what our prayers should be characterized by. They should be continual. Paul says watchful, alert, thankful, and then it will naturally flow to letter D. Pray for opportunity. Now we go from our focus on prayer in general to prayer for the lost. And it comes in the form of a prayer request from Paul himself. Paul says in verse 3, look at it. Follow along with me. He says, pray for us as well. And what's his request? He says, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. There's a cool theme of speech throughout this passage. You're using the mouth to pray to God in the first part, and now you're going to use the mouth again. That prayer is being directed towards proclamation, that the gospel would go out, that the mystery of Christ would be told. Paul's imprisoned in Rome at this time, but that's not stopped him from gospel proclamation ministry. He's all about it, even in chains. And in Philippians 1.13, another one of Paul's prison epistles, Paul says that his witness has extended throughout the entire palace guard. And everybody has heard Paul's gospel message. And it says in that verse, you can write it down, Philippians 1.13, it says that he is in chains for Christ. That's the word that's getting around town. He's locked up for Jesus. That's his testimony and witness. But even in that imprisonment, for Paul, the, the game's not over. And he doesn't want prayers to cease either. Now you hear in this prayer request that Paul understands the importance and the power of prayer. He's asking them for a, a door to open up for the gospel. He says, I can't do this ministry without you there in Colossians, in, in Colossae, praying that that door would open so that the gospel would go out. Praying for that open door. So, okay, doors for a second. Some doors open really wide, right? Some doors slide open and shut. Yes, I am just talking about doors right now. <laughs> Some doors, do you have those cabinet doors that open quickly and then shut slowly? So that your four and six-year-olds can't go, wham! Like, I can't do that anymore. I love it. Know what I mean? Different kinds of doors. Listen, sometimes you have someone's ear for a whole plane flight. Two hours, three hours, four hours, five or six if you're going to the East Coast from here. Sometimes you have the amount of time that it takes the cashier to ring you up and get you on your way. Paul's giving us an incredible first step in setting your heart toward the task of joining God in advancing his gospel. 
I love this charge here. Because he doesn't come out of the gate with, get out there and tell the world about Jesus. I mean, he could, and that is the Great Commission. Go! Go! But he doesn't start there, does he? He started with prayer. He's about to tell us to live in radical pursuit of those who do not know Christ, but he starts with prayer. Listen, we got to be praying for this. We got to be praying for the open doors. We need to pray for our missionaries overseas. Pray for the gang in Uganda, for Shannon and his family, right? Pray for all of those pastors, the international pastors who came through here or now are in really hard ministry in other countries where the gospel can't freely be proclaimed. Pray for those open doors, but then pray for open doors right there in your life. That's that next thing that's coming, okay? I'm just gearing you up. This is convicting. And I, it's not me wanting to make you convicted. This is God's word. I've been chewing on this stuff and thinking, this is the hardest. these are the hardest messages to deliver because this is the hardest stuff to hear. But isn't that a good first step? Pray for the open door. Just start there. You know what happens when you pray for open doors? Doors open. <laughs> doors open. And that's when it gets scary, right? Because you've got to walk through it. So that's point number one. Pray, verses two through four, continually, watchfully, with thankfulness, because you've been saved from death. And then pray for opportunity. Now point number two. Be the answer to your prayer. Look at verse five. The second main imperative in the passage, it starts with a verb. What does it say in your Bible? What's the verb there? Conduct. Okay, you can just replace that word with the word live. The command deals with the way in which you live your life toward those outside of Christ. That's what the passage says. The lost, the unbeliever, the person whose life is not yet surrendered to Jesus. Paul's saying you've been praying that opportunities would come for the lost to be saved. But don't just let us be the answer to that prayer. You join us too. In, in fact, think about the conviction that the Colossians, the believers there would have been having when they hear this letter being read in their church, right? Pursue those outside of Christ. Coming from a guy who's locked up in a prison, a prison cell, right? And he's locked up and he's not stopped. He's taking every opportunity to witness to the guards who are locked inside that jail with him. How much more for the Colossian believers? How much more for us in free America to be the answer to that prayer? To have the gospel go out and go out boldly? Let me ask you a question. This is one that hurts, and I have to ask it of myself as well. Do you ever relegate the work of evangelism to those who are specifically gifted as evangelists? And, and do you have that thought in your mind so much so that you then justify when that door opens wide right in front of you, you justify not doing anything about it? Because you think there are people gifted in that way and that's just not me. Paul says you are to conduct, live, engage in the activity of advancing the gospel. 
And now some more subpoints because he gives three different ways that we're to do it. The first way we are to live toward outsiders is we're to live wisely. Verse 5. Living wisely toward outsiders entails both a wisdom in avoiding compromise. So listen to me here. There's two parts of this. Living wisely in your living toward outsiders, those who are not in Christ, means that when you go out there to seek those who you can preach the gospel to, they are going to be living a life, at least for the time being, that is not in line with Christ. And therefore, you must be wise that you don't, as you go and chase after them, fall into the same whatever it is that they're chasing, right? The immorality of their lives. Now, I'm not saying you know, strong arm the world around you. But what I am saying is, is as you go out there, we got to live wisely. But there's another aspect to this living wisely towards those who are outside of Christ. And that is simply that we use our brains to be wise in our strategy for how we're going to chase after the unbeliever. And I want to kind of live in that application for a moment because I think that's one that along with praying is also just an incredible first or second step in getting yourselves towards that scary thing of sharing the gospel with unbelievers, if that is scary for you. So you want to reach out and you want to love and you want to make Christ attractive to unbelievers. We've already got our first important strategy, right? Pray for it. But now Paul says, you got to think. Think so that you can be effective in your impact when you go to share the gospel with the lost. I remember a coworker in a secular job that I had. Oh, this, is, this, is, this was a heavy-hearted moment for me. She gave me what she thought was a compliment in front of a small group of people. Uh, that I was also working with. And she said, oh, I just love, I love how Patrick has such a strong faith in Jesus. And I was like, yeah, I'm having a witness here. Yeah. Kind of pumped about myself. And all in a moment, she says, I just, I, just, I just think it's so cool that he doesn't push his beliefs on other people. Now, I'll just say, on the one hand, it's good that she didn't see me as pushy. But on the other hand, I don't want the people who are unbelieving in my life to, for me, to just passively allow them to think that I'm a great person while they slowly walk their way to destruction and hell. Because that's devastating, that thought. Now, it doesn't mean that the fact that I've been gracious and I don't push myself on them can't be a, a bridge to being able to have their ear for the gospel. But we need to be strategically putting the gospel before the unbeliever. And that takes wisdom. Our living toward the outside world is tricky. It requires great wisdom and that leads to the second aspect of this outward conduct. So first, living wisely. Second, toward the unbeliever, toward the outside world, we're to speak graciously, Paul says, in the first part of verse 6. He says, let your speech always be with grace, 
as though seasoned with salt. Salt is one of my favorite ingredients. I guess, I guess it's, it kind of has to be the favorite ingredient of everyone who likes taste, right? <laughs> so maybe it's weird for me to say I love salt. Any salt lovers here? Okay, so some of you aren't salt lovers. That's good. I guess it works then. Have you ever picked up a bag of pretzels from the store? And you get home only to find out? It's unsalted! That's like the worst! Listen. It's like cardboard. Yes, thank you. When our speech is gracious toward the unbeliever, it means that we are giving them an experience of Christianity that tastes good. That's what gracious speech does in our witnessing to the lost. Your witness is affected by your words. And I'm not just talking about whether you are cursing in a secular environment or not, but also the way in which that positive, positively reinforces, reinforces, thank you, the reality that you are a reflector of Jesus Christ. That's what we are as believers. We're to be reflectors, showing the world what Christ looks like in the way we live and in the way that we speak in front of those who are outside of a relationship with Jesus. We are to be gracious because we are representing a gracious Savior. Christ is gracious. That's what we just talked about. We didn't deserve his love, and yet he extended it towards us. Is your speech reflecting that type of character? There's nothing more dangerous for a businessman to hire an assistant who leaves people with a bad taste in their, in their mouth, right? You got that person who works for a company. Maybe you've met these people. Maybe, sadly, at some point in your life, you've been this kind of a person. But that person who's, who's out there as a representative of a company, and they go to a client, and they speak just awfully, they're representing the company that they, they serve and the boss that's at the head of that company. What happens when that boss finds out that he's got an employee who's speaking like a mad person with his clients? In 3.5 seconds, they are fired. They're out. Because they're not rightly representing the company. Paul says in his letter to the, the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, that we are ambassadors for Christ. You know that passage? And in the ministry of reconciliation, which is what he's talking about in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, as ambassadors, we are representatives of our King, Jesus. I love this concept. It's so exciting. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.20 that God literally makes an appeal to the unbeliever through us. Be reconciled to God. That's the ministry of reconciliation. And every single one of us is brought into that ministry when God saves us. The ministry of reconciliation. Whereby God speaks through us to the unbelieving world. Be reconciled to him. We're ambassadors. 
So we're to be the answer to our prayer that God would use us, broken, sinful, but redeemed people, to call other broken sinners to salvation in Christ. What a privilege. And we're to do it by living wisely, strategically, towards the unbelievers around us, speaking graciously, like the seasoning of salt that makes something taste good. And now Paul says the third thing in this second point. Respond appropriately. Paul says, verse 6, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that, look at that, so that, what? You will know how you should respond to each person. See, because we're unique. Human beings are all different. And every, every single person who's not in Christ that you interact with is different. And they have different bents and different likes and dislikes. They have different passions. And every unbeliever does not have the same issue with the gospel as the next. listening listening is just so important we're going to respond and hopefully we're going to respond well but what Paul's saying is, is in order for you to respond appropriately and well and to be that good ambassador for Jesus Christ you got to listen this is probably one of the most important aspects of good apologetics any of you studying apologetics in this room? Are there some apologetics geeks in here? Getting yourself ready to have, to have an answer a little bit, right? To have an answer for everyone who asks. And being able to communicate Christianity in a way that is reasonable, biblical, and gets to the heart of the gospel. Real answers. No, no apologist can do what they do well. Like if that's you and you're really great at taking somebody to the scriptures and giving them a, a well-rounded picture of what it is to be a Christian and the gospel message, I don't think that you're accomplishing that very well if you don't have in view the heart and passion and, and, and the personality and what's going on in the person that you are sharing those things with? We want to listen to those things. I remember, and this was now, boy, 15 years ago when we were uh, part of a church plan in the city of Hollywood. If you've never been to the city of Hollywood, it is not Hollywood. <laughs> it is not shiny. Uh, there are not celebrities everywhere. You have to go to another part of town to see those. Um, we were in Hollywood, and, and at the, in the heart of Hollywood, there's a lot of homelessness and uh, drug abuse and prostitution, and uh, Natalie and I lived right in the middle of that for about two years. Um, but one of the first things that we did when we were planting this church in Hollywood was to go out on the streets every Saturday. And one of the things that I feel like was a lesson for me that I had to learn, but it was through the school of hard knocks because I got out there 
and I was all up in people's business. I was like Ray comforting them up one side and down the other. You know what I'm saying? I mean, Carlos Godinez doesn't have anything on me. I was like, I was laying it down. No, but hear me out. This was a lesson that I learned because in Hollywood, you want to talk about variety of personality? In Hollywood, there are all kinds of people. I remember walking right around the Scientology building there where all those crazy people like Tom Cruise go and worship. And I met a woman who had been in it. She was probably 70 years old. I met, I, I met this woman and she is with a straight face explaining to me that she believes that we were dropped off by aliens thousands of years ago and they will eventually pick us back up again in their spacecraft. And I laughed for a tiny moment and she looked at me just dead serious and I was like, you believe that? And she said, yes. Like with conviction. Okay. When you go after somebody, you find very quickly that if you're going to come at them with your message and no care for what they have to say, you will not have their ear for very long. And I found that. I was a young, radical dude, just like, let me take the gospel to the streets. And we started to make those Saturday mornings, I think we even called it listening evangelism, which I, I want to say somebody's written a book with that title probably, but it's such a great concept. To, to start with a genuine care for the person that you're reaching out to and listening well to where they're at. I mean, asking good questions for sure and getting to the heart of the gospel, but making sure that the good news that you're bringing to them is still in acknowledgement of the fact that they are a person that God has made and sadly they're still stuck in their sin with all sorts of ideas about what's right and wrong and what really pleases their God. So important to listen because we want to be able to respond appropriately. So let me kind of wrap this up here. We're going to close in a second. I don't think that there's any greater task. That's just the reality of when God saves us, there's now one main thing. There's a few main things that we do while living the short life on earth. But there is one great commandment that Jesus gives us. And it is this work that God does. He's the one who's sovereign over salvation. But he invites us graciously, amazingly, he invites us into this pursuit of the lost with the gospel. I, I want to say that if we live this short life without putting our eyes and ears and our thoughts towards the ministry of reconciliation, and we spend our years kind of doing what we want, then we will have failed. We will have failed this greatest commandment that Jesus gives us. But there's good news. And you got to say this, so listen to me when I say this. The good news is God has also provided everything that we need to accomplish these things. He gives us the strength. That's what Jesus says at the end of the Great Commission, right? And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So if you are in Christ, you have the power of the God of the universe at work in you. And when he calls you to that command of advancing his gospel, 
He's given you all the strength, all the tools, all that you could ever need just in knowing Him. But then we saw in this passage that God gives us specific helps as well. We have His Word. That's the big picture. But then in this passage, Colossians 4, 2 through 6 told us what? Two clear things. One, pray. And then as you want to be the answer to your prayer, which is the second point that I made, but as you want to be the answer to your prayer, understand that you have Christ with you. You have the strength that, that, that raised Christ from the dead. You have the strength that God gives us in order to accomplish that. So pray. Pray continually. Pray watchfully. Pray with thanksgiving. Pray for those opportunities. When you pray for open doors, doors will open. And as scary as that might be, just get after it. Pray. And then that second big point, be the answer to your prayer. You want to live wisely. Meaning, be careful that you don't fall into temptation while you go after unbelievers. But also strategize on how it is that God can use specifically you in specifically that person's life to draw them towards Christ. Speak graciously and respond appropriately. Okay. If this isn't too weird, close your eyes, bow your head, and think right now. You can put your Bible and your notes away. Close those eyes and only because I want you to really focus on specifics. Think right now on the people in your life who are outside of a relationship with Christ. At some point tonight, I want you to pull out your phone or grab a piece of paper and make a note in your phone with one, just one, one planned strategy to engage with one of these people in your life who have not yet surrendered to Christ. But first, you've got to pinpoint who those people are. So who do you interact with on a regular basis and think on them? Endear your heart to them. Remember why you care for this person. And then remember that right now, apart from God doing the work of regeneration through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that person is on a one-way track to hell, to destruction. And that is the end of everyone who does not bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And in a second, we're going to just pray, okay? I'm going to give you a chance. But the second thing I want to say while your eyes are closed and you're just isolating your thoughts to this topic, if it's you that's outside of Christ, you're listening to the voice of a sinner saved by grace and someone who, according to Scripture, and I know this from my Bible, Someone that has been placed into the ministry of reconciliation. So that there's no gimmick that I bring. 
There's no special words or use of my personality to win you towards Christ. But rather, because I've been placed in the ministry of reconciliation by God, understand that my plea for you to be reconciled to God is from the Lord himself. That's what it says. We who are in Christ have been given the ministry of reconciliation whereby God is calling the unbeliever be reconciled to God. So my encouragement, just talk to someone in this room that you trust who is a Christian and hear their very real story of how this gospel impacted them and changed their lives forever. Put that conversation into tonight or later on the phone or tomorrow when you wake up. Okay? All right. So you got those people. Maybe you've honed in on one person that you need to be praying for. And we're just going to... I'm going to silence up and shut my own mouth and go to prayer for a little bit and then I'll close it, okay? Pray that God would engage your heart and would give you real strategic plans for when that door opens to walk through it. Lord, I pray that we would take seriously these petitions that have been lifted up in this room, that those souls that have just been named in prayer would come to faith in Jesus Christ and that you might use us. Oh, what a privilege. That you might use us in the work that you're doing to draw them to yourself. We know that you're the one who saves. You're the one who does the work of regeneration. So we beg you and we submit ourselves to you. We want to be instruments in your hands to be used for your glory in the advancement of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.